Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. We've been talking over the last few weeks about how life in a busy city like Sydney can feel like it is all take and no give, uh, like we are always giving uh, but never being able to receive ourselves. Uh, and this morning I want us to look at, through the lens of this story, um, what can, well, how God speaks into our lives to shape us in order that we can be people who move into a city that can feel like it doesn't love us back in such a way that we're able to live sacrificial lives that prosper that city. The challenge with that, of course, is that the city uh, often doesn't love us back. And I realised this week that an even deeper challenge for me is that I am all too often a bit too much like our city, too, uh, too full of pride, too full of control, too full of a fixation with authority, uh, having authority. And so it's very difficult for me to go into a city that might not love me back uh, when I'm uh, all too caught up in my own pride and um, obsession with control so that I can't live sacrificially for that city. Thankfully, we have a God, as we see in this story, who models for us what it looks like uh, to love somebody who might not love you back. And he helps us, uh, through his scandalous love, to relinquish our grip on our pride, uh, on this obsession that we have with control and with authority, in order to be free to love those around us who might not love us back, just like he does. And so that's where we're going today. We're going into an experience of what it looks like Uh, to be loved by a God um, who knows that we might not love him back so that we might be freed up to do the same for others. So I'm just going to tell you a story this morning, plenty of breathing room. Uh, This is a story about each one of us and it's a story about our city. It's a story about relinquishing pride and relinquishing a grip on authority and a grip on control. Um, And it's a story about becoming freed from those things in order to participate with the beautiful story of God as he moves out to love others who might not love him back. I've always been a big fan of stories. When I was in year two, my uh, assignment from my teacher, Miss Emery, was to submit a creative writing task, to write my own story and hand it in. And I, at the time, was obsessed with the story of The Little Mermaid. And I had this little 10 by 10 storybook and I memorised word for word the story of The Little Mermaid, wrote it out and submitted it as my own work, as my first encounter with plagiarism at age eight. So I submitted it. Poor old Miss Emery had never heard the story of the Little Mermaid, bless her soul. And so she returned my work with this beautiful round sticker that said superb. And so she submitted it and I showed my mum and she was like, "Um, I think you need to tell your teacher this is not original work. (laughs) So I told Miss Emery that I had... um, I was a plagiarizer, plagiarist, plagiarizer. Anyway, I had plagiarized The Little Mermaid and got away with it. But I fessed up to it um, anyway, and then I think I got a talking to, and I've never plagiarized any work, anyone else's work since. I've never met anybody who doesn't like a good story. Stories have this amazing ability to communicate messages to us in a way that a download of information just never can do. They have this amazing way of helping us uh, to discover who we are by entering into the story as opposed to telling us who we are. The story that Jesus tells us, which Annie so beautifully read for us earlier, is a, is a parable. It's a particular type of story, the story that Jesus of, stories that Jesus often told. And it's a story, the way that parables work is you have to look deeply into them in order to see the message that is embedded within the story. So my encouragement to you this morning as we look into this parable is that would you look deeply into it with me? And I want to encourage you that as you do, you will not only see yourself reflected back to you, but you will see God reflected back to you. 
and you will learn something beautiful about who he is and see something that has the potential to transform your life, to transform the way that you relate to God, the way that you understand yourself, the way that you work, rest and play and the way that you engage with a city that might not love you back. Are you ready? All right, good. Come with me. This is a story about a man who has two sons. The story is just as much about the older son as it is about the brother son, but that is a story for another day. This morning, we are going to focus on the younger son. Um, The younger son who, just like his older brother, has this grip on pride, control, authority and power. And the day we meet this family is the day that the younger son goes up to his father and does the unthinkable. He goes up to his dad and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this is a wealthy old money family. They've got land and buildings and animals and servants. This was their their identity. The land and, and buildings would have been in their family for generations. Their identity as a family in this culture was so inextricably bound up with their land, with their buildings. And he's saying, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of the buildings, of the animals, of the land, of all your wealth. What, what, what would be due to me when you die? The problem, of course, is that his father is still very well and alive. And he's saying, give, it to, give me my share that would be due to me when you die. Effectively saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I no longer wish to have a relationship with you. I no longer wish to be your son. I no longer wish for you to be my father. I don't care about you. I don't care anything about you. I just want what I can get from you. I'm sure some of you have experienced how painful it is when somebody just wants your stuff. <laughs> they just want what you can give to them. They just want your wealth or they just want something from you but they don't actually want a relationship with you so he says dad I don't care about you let's cut off our relationship I'm only interested in what I can get out of you painful now the middle original middle eastern audience who was listening to this story that Jesus told would have been absolutely horrified they would have been on the edge of their seat thinking who is this idiot you do ne- you never ask your father for an early inheritance that does not happen how is the father going to respond to this guy um They would have expected the father right then and there to disown and punish his son, to beat him right there and then. That would have been the reasonable response of a father in that context to such an outrageous request. But not this father, to everyone's surprise. He goes ahead and divides his property between his two sons, a third for the younger, two thirds for the older, as was the custom. And on occasions when the inheritance was given early, which was only when the the head of the family was sick or unable to manage their estate. On those occasions, um, the the sons who were given given, um, given the estate, they would have had authority over the estate, but they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have been allowed to do whatever they wanted with it. In other words, they would have had had authority to manage the estate, but they weren't allowed to sell it off. So even more outrageous then, when this younger son gets together all he has, a third of the family's building, animals, servants, wealth, everything. It's a family home in Kalara that's been in the family for generations and generations, even so much more inextricably linked with their identity as a family. And he liquidates it, sells it off to somebody else. This is such a huge personal loss to their family identity. This is the work of generations, this family's livelihood and identity. So he's told his father he wishes he was dead and then he proceeds to live as if his father is dead, rejecting his father in both word and deed. And the worst part of it is that he breaks relationship with his father and so breaks his father's heart. 
Now, there's some dramatic irony here in that we, as the listeners, know something that the, the younger son, the character, doesn't know. Here's what the listeners to this story would have recognised that the younger son was blinded to. At that time, your family is what gave you your social security, your physical and emotional well-being, your identity, your support, your inheritance, your livelihood, your identity. And the younger son permanently cuts himself off from all of that at the roots by severing his ties with his father. Someone without family roots was considered to be a vagabond and not trusted. He's so blinded by his prideful desire for control and authority over his own life that he cuts himself off from his identity and from his long-term well-being at the roots for the immediate opportunity for unbridled control over his life. He cuts his father off thinking that a relationship with his father is holding him back, not realising that in so doing... He's cutting himself off. And when you cut yourself off from your life supply, it's a slippery descent into ruin. You unplug your phone from the wall 100% and then over time, there's less and less battery until it gets to 0% and cuts out. Or you cut a flower from the flower bed. It's not long. You cut it off from its life supply. It's not long until eventually that flower is going to die. It's the, same, it's the same deal. He's cutting himself off from his life supply. So off he goes. A third of the family's wealth with him utterly blind to the ruin that lies ahead of him, still running at 100% battery, and utterly blind to the devastation and the hurt that he has left before him. And the only thing that follows after him is the love of his broken-hearted father. So he finds himself in a distant country, far, far away, as every good story goes. And there he squanders, wastes a third of his family's wealth on wild living, like the great Gatsby. He throws it around. Prodigal literally means wastefully extravagant. He throws money about. He wastes all of, this, all of the family's money. He's reckless. And once he's run out of money, a, fam- a famine comes in this foreign land. And for the first time in his life, this rich kid begins to be in need. He's cut himself off from the life source of his father and he's got nothing. But even a famine isn't enough to drive this guy back to his father. He's so determined to have unbridled control of his life that he lowers himself as far as he possibly could and he hires himself out to feed pigs. Now, no respectable person, no rich kid from a wealthy family hired themselves out to do anything. To hire yourself out was to be at the bottom of the, of the labour ladder. There was no guaranteed work there. Not only did he hire himself out, but he hired himself out to feed pigs. Now, to this guy who was probably going to be Jewish in this story, to feed pigs, pigs would have been abhorrent and unclean to him. It's unthinkable that he has hired himself out to feed pigs. He probably became a beggar. It says that he longed to fill, fill his um, stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And the slippery descent into ruin has reached its bottom. I don't know if you've ever been in a car as a passenger with a driver who doesn't realise they're lost. Anyone? I've, I, yes, okay, good. I'm not the only one. I have discerned that there is a three-step process to what happens when there's a driver who doesn't realise they're lost. Step one, driver is completely oblivious, keeps on driving in the wrong direction, has no idea that they're lost because they're overconfident in their abilities to navigate. And so they're completely lost. And you realise they're lost, but don't say anything. 
phase two is driver starts the, like a new day. The, the realization starts to dawn on this driver that perhaps they don't know exactly where they are, but they're not going to admit that to anybody. And so they keep driving as if everything in the world is fine. Correct? Yes. I can hear some nervous laughter. Maybe there's someone next to you who you're trying not to nudge. Phase three is when things get really, really dire. Uh, the driver admits, yes, they are lost because there's no hope except for to admitting that they hope, admits, admitting that they're lost, admits they're, they're lost and asks for directions. Yes? Yes, okay. You can nudge. It's okay. It's all right. If there's someone next to you who you recognise in, that's okay. It's all right. It's a safe place. This is what happens with the prodigal son when things get really, really dire and there is no way out. Eventually, he realises that he is lost and that he needs some help. He comes to his senses, the passage tells us. He realises that he has gotten himself into a dark pit. He has no income. He has no food. He has no home. There's nowhere he belongs. There's no one he belongs to. He has no community. He has no support. He has no family. And so he does what we do when we realise we're in a bind, is that he hatches a plan to do the hard work of saving himself. Here's how it goes. He hopes to be accepted by his father as a hired servant, just so he can get some food. And he prepares this speech for when he goes home to his dad. And this is the speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is his last resort. He has done absolutely everything he can to avoid having to go back to town, back to his father after what he's done. His only option seems to be to work his way back, to pay back what he's done, right? What other option does he have? But there are some huge obstacles for him to overcome. Not only does he have his pride to deal with after this rich kid having come to such ruin, that's an obstacle, but he knows what village life is like when he's going to return. Some of us here are from small villages or, or regional towns. You know what, it's, what life is like in a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. <laughs> when he goes back, the villagers are going to see him and he knows what he's done will be common knowledge. He knows the judgment and the scorn that he will receive when he tries to go back from the whole village and especially from his judgmental older brother. Now, to put this into perspective, often for those of us who know this story, we imagine the father's house as being positioned in the middle of a field, surrounded by rolling hills with a long driveway leading up to the front of the house, which has a wraparound veranda. Yes? Anyone else have that picture in the house of the father's house? So it's quite a private affair when the prodigal returns home. Actually, in this culture, farming land was far too valuable to build your house on it. The house would not have been in the middle of their land. The house would have been in town so that they could keep the fields for farming, which was far more valuable for growing crops and so on. What that means is that in order for the prodigal to return home is he would have had to walk the gauntlet of the village through the villages. It was a public return. He would have had to walk the village road with the community watching him and scorning him he knows that they will leer after him. We know who you are and we know what you've done. How dare you show your face around here? Who do you think you are to bring such disgrace on your family and then return? Who do you are to think you've even got a chance of your father hiring you as a servant? You're not good enough to be part of our community. That's what he's looking down the barrel of. 
He probably hopes to sell himself to somehow pay back what he has lost, all this money he's lost to redeem himself through hard work and to preserve his self-reliance and pride. He's going to work his way back, or so he thinks. What he doesn't realise, of course, is that his great sin is not losing a third of the family's estate. His great sin is breaking his father's heart. And there's no way that you can ever pay that back. There's no way that you can ever work long enough or hard enough to make amends for that. But, dramatic irony again, not realising that. He, goes, he gets up, goes home to his father, planned to save himself in his mind, prepared to face the shameful gauntlet of the village, to face his father and his brother and preparing himself for the worst. So can you imagine this famine-starved, thirsty, exhausted man, clothes ripped, face covered in dirt, walking down this road towards the village and wondering what's going to lie in store? Will his father accept him back? How are the villagers going to treat him? What's he going to say to his brother? What will he do if his father doesn't accept him back as a hired servant? He'll have no way to live. It's his only option. So can you imagine his surprise when in the distance he sees a figure running towards him? And as this figure gets closer... He realises it's his father. Listen to this, as one writer puts it. Of the father, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. He has not run anywhere for any purpose for 40 years. No villager over the age of 30 ever runs But now the father races down the road. To do so, he must take the front edge of his robes in his hand like a teenager. When he does this, all his undergarments show. All of this is frightfully shameful for him. The gang in the street will be distracted from tormenting the prodigal. Instead, they will race after the father, amazed at seeing the old man shame himself publicly. Can you imagine? The father who has been so deeply wounded and humiliated by his son chooses to take on himself the shame and humiliation that his son deserves. Put yourself in the shoes of the prodigal son. How do you feel? 
Why do you think the father acts like this? How could he possibly act like this? It's because when he sees his boy still a long way off, eyes trained onto his missing son. This son who has rejected him, who has broken his heart, who's lost a third of his family estate and identity. And even though his son doesn't love him back, as soon as he sees him, he races out to be with him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. He doesn't move away from his son. He moves towards him with a scandalous, suffering love. Now what happens for the son when he experiences a love that absorbs the shame and humiliation that he should have taken? How does he respond? What happens for him? This is overwhelming, right? He sees for the first time the depths of both what he has done and how much he's loved. He sees that he hasn't just lost a third of the family's wealth. He has broken his father's heart. He alone is the cause of this immense suffering and disgrace. And yet at the same moment, he sees the depths of the love of the father who would willingly disgrace himself in order to welcome his son back home. And when he can find the words, he starts to deliver the speech that he has rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But there he stops. <coughs> Did you notice he's dropped his offer to become a hired servant in the face of the father's suffering love? He realises that his plan won't work, that working will never work. What he has done to his father is way beyond his ability to repair. He has broken his relationship with his father and, and in so doing broken his father's heart. Working as a servant could never repair the damage that he has caused because his father doesn't want a servant. His father wants a son. And you can't work your way into being a son. That can only be freely given and received. And in fact, offering to become a servant would be all the more insulting, wouldn't it, to this father who has just publicly disgraced himself in order to welcome his son back as a son. And so it dawns on him like the light of a new day that there is no option for him, no way forward in life other than to throw himself on the mercy of his servant. He can't stay in the foreign land and he can't become a servant of his father. His only option is to throw himself on his father's suffering love and be welcomed back freely as a son. And so he relinquishes control over his life. He lays down his pride, his obsession with authority and power. 
He humbles himself and he allows the father to treat him as, he, as the father wants to treat him, not as he believes he ought to be treated. Do you hear that? I'm going to say it again. He allows the father to treat him as the father wants to treat him, not as he believes he ought to be treated because of what he's done. The way the father wants to treat the son is to love and restore him as a son. And all the prodigal son needs to do is to humble himself in surrender and receive the father's love and restoration. Only the love of the father can transform death into life and lost into found. And when he humbles himself and allows the father to restore him as a son, to treat him as he wants to treat him, when he surrenders to the surprising, overwhelming, scandalous love of his father, the father restores him in the most wonderful, practical way. And he says, quick, he gets the servants to bring the best robe, which naturally would have been the father's robe. He gets them to bring a ring, probably a signet ring, which amazingly would have given this guy some authority to manage the rest of the family's wealth. <laughs> and he gets them to bring shoes. Slaves went barefoot, but sons, sons wore shoes. He does this publicly in front of the whole village so that everybody will have known how fully and utterly and completely the son has been welcomed back as a son. He, he throws an extravagant party, kill the fattened calf, he says, and he invites the villagers, he invites the elders of the village so everybody will participate, they'll see the robe, they'll see the ring, they'll see the shoes and they will know this guy is part of the community. He's welcomed in fully. And the father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What a story, hey? When Jesus first told this story, it was delivered as an explanation to the religious leaders of the day, the ones who like to stay in their holy huddle, uh, of why, Jesus, why it was that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, why it was that he didn't stay in his holy huddle. And it's as if he's saying to the religious leaders in this story, as one writer puts it, actually, it's much worse than you imagine. I not only eat with tax collectors and sinners, I've come to search for them. I rush down the road and humiliate myself to bring them in and eat with them. This is a story about the prodigal son and it's a story about the tax collectors and sinners who lived and, and moved among Jesus when he walked the earth. But it's also a story about you and a story about me. As we look deeply into this story, we see how we, each one of us, have rejected the love of God by going our own way, determined to control our own lives, but blind to the fact that the path that we choose in so doing will ultimately end in a ruin that we can't escape from on our own. But praise God, because as we look deeply into this story, 
We also see Jesus, don't we? Just like the father in the story, he endures the pain of our rejection of him and he holds out scandalous, suffering love as our lifeline to restore us back as children of God. He absorbs the shame and the humiliation that we deserve for cutting off relationship with him, for breaking his heart by going our own way. And he absorbs that shame and humiliation so that we don't want to, so that we don't have to, so that we can be fully and utterly restored as God's children, welcomed back home to him. Do you see that? It's the suffering love of Jesus that operates as our lifeline, our only lifeline. We can't stay in the distant country cut off from God, from our, from our source of life. And we can't try to work to work our way back. We can never work enough to earn our way back into relationship with God. The wound is too deep. This is our only way forward. This is our only hope of life, our only hope of being restored to life with God and to relationship with others. And so as with the prodigal son this morning, each one of us has a choice before us. You can choose to stay in the distant country this morning, determined to hold on to your pride and desire to control your own life, to go your own way, to reject God's offer of love in Jesus, to remain cut off from him, the source of life. Or you can choose to listen to the voices that tell you you just need to work harder to get there. You can achieve it on your own, still holding on to your own pride and your desire to control your own life. And still remaining cut off from God because working never works. Or this morning you can gaze upon the suffering love of Jesus. Realise that he is your only hope of salvation. Humble yourself before him and receive for yourself unending love and mercy and forgiveness and a life like you've never known. This is not just a message for everyone else this morning. This is a message for you. God's eyes are lovingly trained onto you. He doesn't miss a beat of your life. He came from heaven to suffer and die on your behalf so that you can know life and salvation. Would you dare this morning to let God be God towards you? Would you dare to let him love you like he wants to love you? Would you let him treat you like he wants to treat you and not like you think you deserve to be treated? Would you dare this morning? Would you let him find you in your lostness and bring you home to relationship with him? (coughs) To let him do that for you will bring such joy to his heart and you will find a life and love like you have never known. Perhaps you know this morning that you're not doing a good job of running your own life. 
And you can see yourself like the mobile phone running out of battery power and you're getting scarily towards zero. And maybe this morning's a bit of a wake-up call that you need to reconnect with God today by surrendering to his I love you and letting him welcome you home through Jesus' suffering love. Perhaps you feel like you've just been away from God for too long. You've been in the distant country too long or you've gone too far to ever be welcomed back. Can I encourage you this morning? All you need to do is turn and he's right there with open arms to welcome you back. Or maybe you have let the glory of the suffering love of Jesus grow dim in your life and you need to bow and surrender to it again today for him to reawaken that in you. Whatever it is, would you surrender to his I love you this morning? Would you let his suffering love welcome you home for the first or the thousandth time? Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.